This is John Williams reaching out to our old friend Thomas Jefferson. President Jefferson, are you there? Yes, citizen, I am here. Um, this is going to be a, a special conversation slash podcast. This is out of our normal routine, sir. We normally talk to you on Fridays and post those podcasts then, but there seems to be such urgency around a couple of constitutional issues that I thought I'd reach out to you again today. Um, you are not the author of, nor did you participate in the writing of the Constitution, but this is about the Founding Fathers. And I wanted to ask you about that second article in the Constitution, the advise and consent thing. Like so many things the Founding Fathers left us with, Mr. Jefferson, tell me if you agree. It's instructive, but it's also maddeningly vague. We really don't have a lot of advice from you guys about how to pick a Supreme Court justice. Well, there are vagaries in the Constitution of the United States. As you, as you rightly said, I was not one of its authors. I was in Europe at the time serving as an ambassador to France, but I watched the deliberations in Philadelphia with great interest. And, of course, the father of the Constitution, James Madison, was my closest friend in life. General Washington, the first president of the United States, decided to take the advice part of that phrase, advise and consent, very seriously. And he went up to the Senate to uh, talk with them about Indian relations, about our, our policy towards American Indians on the frontier. And the Senate, unfortunately, kept the president waiting for a very long period of time. And by the time he was admitted into the Senate chamber, he was so angry and frustrated that he decided he would never, under any circumstances, go back to get advice from the Congress of the United States again. And really, that was the end of the first part of that phrase. Since then, and this was the first presidency of the United States, the Senate has been confined mostly to consenting. In other words, the president nominates somebody for a cabinet post or an ambassadorship or in this case, the Supreme Court seat, and the Senate sits in evaluation of that candidate and then consents or refuses to give consent. But advice is no longer sought by presidents. Well, it's more about maybe the consent that we're interested in these days. It seems like the argument is whether or not the Senate would even deign to hear or have a hearing on, a vote on, whoever the president nominates. It would seem to me like that would be an abdication of their duties. I agree. The president is elected for a four-year term, and he has full power for the entirety of that term. In other words, he has sovereignty in the limited executive sense from the moment he is affirmed by the oath of office at his inauguration mm -hmm. until the moment that his successor is inaugurated. He has the power to do whatever a president is supposed to do, during that time. And in fact, he has the duty to do it. And so I believe that any president finding a, a vacancy in the Supreme Court has not only a right, but a duty to fill it if he can. Now, the Senate can withhold consent if it wishes to. That's one of its powers under the checks and balances philosophy of our government. Whether that's a good idea for the Senate to withhold consent is another question. Well, the I talked to a United States senator yesterday, uh, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. He's a Republican, and he said, well, 
advice may be, no, we are not going to approve of the people that you're putting forward and we find them so toxic we're not even going to have a hearing on them or a vote on them. That's certainly within their purview, he said, and it's not any sort of dereliction of duty on the Senate's part. I think most of us feel, I sure do, that with a year out, one more year of the president's term, there ought to be enough time for the president to put somebody forward who has the qualifications. And if they don't like that person's politics, we voted for Barack Obama. He was the winner. So as long as that person is qualified, it would seem to me like the Senate's position should not be to judge the politics or the future rulings of that person, but only their ability to understand the law. I know that's terribly partisan. Some people wouldn't agree with that, but that's how I see it. Well, I have no interest in the partisan politics of your time, but I do have an interest in the health of our Constitution. So I have a couple of things to say about that, sir. One is that elections matter. The president was elected. He has a duty to fill vacancies during the course of his term. If the Secretary of Defense had died in office, everyone would agree that you need a new Secretary of Defense uh, during the last year of this president's term. If the Secretary of Commerce had died or the ambassador to France, these positions would be filled. And therefore, the Supreme Court vacancy should also be filled on that principle. The president has all the power of the executive until the moment that he is replaced by another president. The second issue is more of a philosophy of government, but I'll tell you how I felt in my own time. I believe that the president has a right to surround himself with people of his own political stamp. That may be objectionable to the opposition party, in my case, the Federalists, but the president, in my view, has a right to find people that are congenial to his philosophy of government, and it's not for the losers of the executive election to veto that. In my opinion, the Senate's duty in all cases of appointment is to make sure that the candidate is fit, that he has the, the, the capacities to fulfill his office, whether it's a cabinet office or, in this case, a legal one. In other words, is he qualified in the sense of prepared by his education and his temperament for that office? And that's the only criterion, mm-hmm. I believe, that the Senate can use. They can't say, we just don't happen to like his personal habits, or we don't happen to like his philosophy, or we don't happen to like his associations. Those things are not for them to decide. The president has a right to surround himself with people who resonate with his own view of government. Okay, but um, two things about that. One was um, I'm interested in the Abigail Adams thread into this story for you, but also uh, this. You said elections matter. Every time I offer that up again to Senator Johnson or the other side, they say, yes, they do. And guess what? In the elections, the United States people decided that they want a Republican-controlled Senate. It was a rebuke to Barack Obama's administration. So elections do matter. And John Williams' contention that, hey, we voted for Barack Obama, we want his policies and his Supreme Court justices, (laughs) has to go up against Uh, Guess what? We voted for a Republican Senate because Barack Obama is the president, and that's what should matter. Well, let me address that. Under our constitutional system, the Senate has every right to deny the nominee appointment to the Supreme Court. They don't even have to hold hearings if they don't want to. They can play chess every day from now until the next president is inaugurated. 
Nobody can tell the Senate what to do. We need independence of each branch of government, and the executive cannot force the Congress to do anything that it doesn't wish to do. And I think that's one of the protections of our system. So the senator that you're speaking with is correct that the Senate has a right to obstruct the president. But that's not the end of the question. A constitutional right is not the same as gentlemanly behavior or doing what's best for the Commonwealth of the United States, or even more, granting to the executive executive functions. In other words, the Senate could never nominate someone for the Supreme Court. It's unacceptable and illegal under our Constitution. One person and one person only can nominate a Supreme Court justice, and that's the President of the United States. The Senate then sits in judgment about that candidacy. But if it takes that role in an obstructionist uh, manner, it's not only not behaving in a way that's very humane and and gentlemanly and and generous, but it's obstructing the official business of the United States. So yes, constitutionally, they're on solid ground in terms of the, the usefulness of our commonwealth and its ability to govern this society. They'd be making a serious mistake, I believe. Did you have a conversation with Abigail Adams about this? Yeah, so here's a different sort of an issue. So in the last moments of John Adams' Uh, administration. He was a one-term president, uh, discredited at the polls, retired after a single term. He was truly a lame duck. In other words, the election results were clear, and I had been made the third president of the United States, and he was being retired to Massachusetts. In the last weeks of his presidency, he packed our entire court system and our executive branch with my sworn enemies, people whose duty was to prevent me from governing effectively. And one of his so-called midnight appointments was a new chief justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, John Marshall, my cousin. I objected to that because the election results were in. In other words, it wasn't a year out before a national election. The results were in, and he deliberately, to prevent me from bringing about the second American Revolution, put Justice Marshall on the Supreme Court. Marshall then went on for 34 years to tyrannize our judicial branch. I objected because it seemed ungentlemanly. But Abigail Adams, in a letter exchange that we had in 184, said, wait a minute, you may take that as a personal affront, Mr. Jefferson, but my husband, John Adams, had a constitutional right to fulfill any vacancy until the last day of his term. And of course, she was right. From a constitutional point of view, Adams had every right to appoint John Marshall. Whether it was a good and decent thing to do, either for me or for the country, is another question, I think. It's a little ironic that you're sort of defending the Supreme Court and the justices here because I, 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 I don't, don't think... like them very much. <laughs> <laughs> to, put, to put no finer touch on it, I, I always thought that the judicial branch was uh, a nuisance. And if you read your Constitution, John, you will not find the concept of judicial review in it. In other words, the notion that the Supreme Court can sit in isolation and strike down acts of Congress is not something that the Founding Fathers articulated in the Constitution. That so-called power was inserted into our system by the very man we're talking about, John Marshall, in the famous case Marbury v. Madison. And he actually then installed a kind of constitutional junta and said that the Supreme Court will be the final arbiter of the constitutionality of presidential acts or legislation passed by Congress. I repeat, that is not a power granted to the courts in the Constitution of the United States, but now you're stuck with it. 
Well, the biggest problem we have with the Supreme Court today, certainly critics of any next, well, of, of any liberal justice, is that they act legislatively, that they create law. They don't interpret law. They're too activists. That's the buzzword. I don't know if you have any wisdom for us on that, but certainly uh, conservatives would prefer that the next justice be conservative because it seems like uh, liberal judges have an agenda and create law rather than interpret it. Right. Well, two things about that. Uh, First of all, if you try to govern the 21st century with an 18th century document, you know, we lived in the age of Isaac Newton. We lived in a three-mile-per-hour world. If you try to govern yourselves in the 21st century using a document that was written in the age of enlightenment, you're going to have to have activist judges because they're going to have to stretch that fabric with its vague uh, principles and its notions of government to cover circumstances that could never have been imagined or anticipated by the founding fathers. So what did James Madison know about the Internet? What did the founding fathers know about um, cloning or stem cell research or surveillance by the National Security Agency? They were completely incapable of understanding the very circumstances and issues of your time. Mm -hmm. Abortion existed in my time, but it wasn't surgical, and it was almost never practiced because it was so dangerous. And so to try to govern yourself now with our instrument forces judges to be activists because they have no other choice. You should have torn up your constitution once per generation and we would not be having this discussion. All right. Well, we'll we'll have another discussion, though, in the very near future because this situation is so fluid. And I, I really appreciate and I know our listeners do your your thoughts and guidance on this. Uh, by the way, happy yeah, belief- one one more thing about this, sir, and that is that if if you're going to fill this justice's seat, I understand that his reputation was for being a brilliant legal jurist. He had a great legal mind. Whatever you think of his political outlook, it would seem to me that the criterion should be to find another extraordinarily intelligent and brilliant jurist, and not think too much about his actual politics. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does to me. Uh, I think it does to everybody, <clears throat> but it's <laughs> but the devil's in the details uh, because uh, one side is no matter who the president appoints, one side is going to take a you know exception to it, um, uh, and, and that'll be the case in a year from now. If a Republican is in office, then the Democrats will cry foul. I'm afraid. Well, the person may surprise you. You know, one of your more recent presidents, um, a man named Eisenhower said I made two mistakes during my presidency, and they're both on the Supreme Court. Hmm. Um, by the way, uh, happy belated birthday to you, uh, April Yes, th- April 13th. 13th. Uh, I was going to send you a cake, but I didn't know how to send it back in time. So uh, the kids all took the day off from school, though, and, uh, and so happy belated President's Day. I've heard many excuses for not sending me a card on my birthday, but time travel is the first that uh, has no resemblance to honesty. 